If you would turn with me tonight to the book of Job, and we'll begin in chapter number one. While you're finding your way there, um, let me talk for just a moment about the place of Job in the Old Testament. Not necessarily where it is in terms of coming before the book of Psalms and after the book of Esther, um, but the role that it serves within the Old Testament. We said several weeks ago when studying the book of Deuteronomy together that the book of Deuteronomy sets the theological framework for the Old Testament. In other words, the, the theology of the book of Deuteronomy is the theology of the Old Testament. The prophets who preach later in the Old Testament, they're just providing expository sermons on the book of Deuteronomy. That, that is their preaching text. When Ezra reads the book of the law and expounds upon the book of the law in Ezra and Nehemiah, he is reading the book of Deuteronomy and providing for them an exposition. In the historical books of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, the, the morality of those kings are evaluated according to the theological standards of the book of Deuteronomy. That's how an assessment of their kingship is made. Did they worship idols or did they not worship idols? If bad things happen in their experience, often there are direct lines drawn between their misfortune and the curse of God on them for their disobedience. Um, When they are blessed or favored, in the case of David and Solomon and other kings who are regarded as good kings, it is the product of the working out of that theology that we learn first in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, a central theological theme is this, that God blesses the obedient and he curses the disobedient. Now, that is true, isn't it? We read that. In fact, that is recited over and over and over again in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But that is not the same as saying that a person who is fortunate or blessed, as we might describe them, is obedient. Nor is it the same as saying that a person who suffers has been disobedient. To say that God blesses obedience is not the same as saying that the blessed are obedient. To say that God curses the disobedient is not the same as saying that the cursed are disobedient. The book of Job helps to provide uh, the other side of the coin of truth, the first side we see in Deuteronomy, the other side, a much needed necessary side we see in the book of Job. Job helps us to reckon with this idea that in this world, corrupted by sin, that legitimately good people suffer. This is a reality of life in the here and now. Now, it's quite popular in our discussions of how God is at work in the world and uh, the experience of suffering on the part of good people to be dismissive of that idea. We say one of my favorite quotes with regards to the problem of evil or suffering is, uh, was R.C. Sproul's answer. He was asked, why good people suffer? To which he responded, well, it's only happened once, and he volunteered for it, speaking of Jesus. And that is certainly true in the most literal way of understanding the problem of good people suffering. But in the book of Job, we have a man who is described not by his friends, not by his family, not by his congregation, but by God as being a good man, blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And in spite of his righteous standing before God, Job undergoes a series of sufferings 
that have really cemented his legacy in history, even outside of Christianity. The name Job is synonymous with suffering and hardship. And yet God continued to show Job favor through that experience. Job becomes the paradigm or the pattern for us as to what it looks like, the experience of the righteous when they suffer and how God reverses the fortunes of those who suffer even uh, the harshest of afflictions. Job chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5 introduce us to Job the man. Look there first. The Bible says there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, this is a historical uh, reference to Job's historical family and his historical possessions. He had seven sons and he had three daughters. And he had 7,000 sheep and he had 3,000 camels and he had 500 yoke of oxen and he had 500 female donkeys and he had a very large number of servants. But the way it is depicted here in the text is it's pictured in such a way as to stress the point that Job is the ideal man with the ideal family with the ideal fortune. He had seven sons. Seven is one of those numbers of perfection in the Bible. He had three daughters. Three is one of those numbers of perfection in the Bible. He had ten total children. Ten is one of those numbers of perfection in the Bible. This is the Olin Mills family. This is what you want your family to be. And it's led by a man who is described, again, not by friends, not by family, not by acquaintances, but by God as blameless and upright, one who feared the Lord and who shunned evil. And yet he experiences in the pages to come a great deal of suffering. Look at verse 4. The Bible says his sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for them all. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So his sons would have celebrations. In my sanctified imagination, I imagine them being birthday parties. When you have ten children, birthday parties come around very often. And when they would have these celebrations, they would invite their sisters to join them, and there would be revelry and dancing and all kinds of excitement. And Job observed that there's something about these get-togethers that, that seems to be a, a precarious situation for my children. He's afraid that in the revelry, in the celebration, in their gathering together, that they'll do something that would compromise their standing with God. In other words, Job is a good daddy. He's perceptive, and he's discerning, and he sees when there's trouble ahead for his children. As a result of his concern for the spiritual well-being of his children, each time one of these celebrations would happen, Job would offer sacrifices to God, and he would intercede on behalf of his children. Job is here functioning as the priest of his family. Job takes it upon himself to bear the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of his family. Daddies, that's what we do, right? 
And so when they would celebrate, Job would pray and he would intercede and he would go before God and he would plead for grace and for mercy. This was Job's regular practice. Now, something begins to unfold. The scene shifts in verse 6. And in verse 6, we look now from earth where Job and his family abides to heaven where God abides. And there's an exchange between God and Satan concerning the man Job. In verse 6, the Bible says, One day the sons of God, that is the angels, presumably demonic angels in this context, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered him from roaming through the earth and walking around on it. This is the language, this is the, the tradition behind what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.13 when he says that the devil prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the Lord said to Satan in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Now this is strange. If, if you're reading this for the first time, you, you may not be picking this up. If you're reading this for the hundredth time, you, you've probably become so familiar with it, it doesn't stand out to you. God said, Satan, have you checked out Job? This is like if someone broke into your house tonight, and, and you were awakened in the night at, at the disruption, and you realized that there was a robber in your house, and you said, have you checked the safe in the master closet? God says, Satan, in your prowling about the earth, seeking whom you may devour, have you given any consideration whatsoever to Job? He is a man of perfect integrity, blameless and upright. And Satan answered in verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan says, when all he has is you, it won't be enough. There's some real probing questions here that we have to ask of ourselves in studying the book of Job. Brothers and sisters, if all you had was Jesus, would it still be enough? If all of your stuff, if all of your family, if all of your possessions, and ultimately all of your health and well-being were taken away, would Jesus still be enough? God contends that for Job it will be. Satan contends that for Job it mustn't be. God says in verse 12, very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself, so Satan left the Lord's presence. Let me tell you what's encouraging about this passage. Satan does not move against Job the man nor any child of God apart from the permission of God who is in heaven. Are y'all with me? There is nothing that can unfold in your life by the direct influence of Satan or his minions that has not been preordained by the good God of heaven to serve your good and the glory of his name. Now the next time that you suffer affliction, the next time that you are brought low in suffering, you must remember that if God has counted your affliction worthy of what is to come, the outcome must be pretty outstanding. 
Satan does not move apart from the permission of a good and faithful God who is in heaven. And so in verse 13, the Bible says, One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, While the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported. A lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when another came and reported. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, when the fourth servant comes in verse 18, don't you know by now that Job's picked up on this pattern? That he's aware of the rhythm? And don't you know that there must have been a, a, a sick feeling in his gut, a bitter taste in his mouth as he watches the fourth servant approaching with what he understands by now will in all likelihood be further bad news. This messenger came in verse 18 and he said this, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now most of the time when we read this passage, we do so with a lack of sobriety. Meaning that we read the book of Job like we read most other things in a way that is entirely disconnected to the reality behind what's being communicated in the story itself. But I want you for just a moment, if you can, to stretch your mind a little bit. Consider what it must have been like for Job to lose not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, not eight, not nine, but ten children in one fail swoop. On, on top of the fact that he had lost all of his worldly goods, there have been a few instances in my lifetime where a great number of people in our nation had lost all of their worldly goods at one time. I'm thinking like Enron and the Bernie Madoff scandal when people lost a lifetime of savings in one fell swoop. But I, I, I know of no other situation that measures up to the suffering that Job must have experienced all at once, having lost what he'd worked his entire life to have and all of his children at one time. Did you notice what his children were doing when they died? Did you notice how Satan touched the nerve of Job? They were doing the very thing that concerned Job for their spiritual well-being when the wind struck the four corners of the house and they died. They were together celebrating in one of the brothers' house, houses, uh, eating and drinking wine and making merry. They were doing that thing that Job was concerned would compromise their standing with God, and in an instant, they were gone. Now, how would you respond if, if that happened to someone in the fellowship of our church and their response was anger and frustration and bitterness, and even if they were to withdraw from the fellowship of the church, we certainly wouldn't encourage that, but we'd be understanding, wouldn't we? We'd encourage them and we'd, 
we'd bear witness with uh, the difficulty that they were going through, and we would encourage them to come to Jesus and to come back into the fellowship of the church and turn their eyes away from the affliction and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our sufficiency, our help, and our hope and in time of need. But Job doesn't stumble, and he doesn't stammer. In fact, in verse 20, the Bible says that Job stood up he tore his robe and he shaved his head, the symbols of his grief and mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh, or blessed be the name of the Lord. Now in verse 22 we have this statement, and it's made twice in these first two chapters. Here's what it says. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Now, I have heard that preached and talked about as though Job never sins through this whole episode. Job never says anything bad or incorrect through this whole episode. But I contend that that is really not why that verse is where it is. That's really not what Job is focused on in this particular pattern, what the book of Job is, is focused on at this point. That verse comes immediately after Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now we understand, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and we understand that the Lord gives, and we understand, blessed be the name of the Lord. But what Job affirms in the midst of his suffering is the sovereignty of God over his life in spite of the pain that he's feeling. Now, in our world, in the Western world, often against the backdrop of great suffering, there are cries of some kind of divine injustice. If God is good... How could these things be? What Job says flies in the face of, of that erroneous perspective that asks where God is when these bad things happen. Job knows where God is. He's right in the middle of it. For Job's good and for the glory of his name, Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. In other words, the narrator tells us in verse 22, you, you hear what Job said? He's not crazy. The, the man, the brother knows what he's talking about. There are times in the book of Job when he misses the mark. As you get nearer the end of the speech cycles that we'll talk about in a moment, Job gets further and further away from a good position. He starts strong, but he ends really rather weakly before God rebukes him and restores him at the end of the book of Job. Job fouled it up a number of times along the way. But right here, Job gets it right. Indeed, the Lord does give, and the Lord does take away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, round two is coming. In chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says that yet again, one day, the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered him from roaming through the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. 
he still retains his integrity even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. And Satan answered, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord told Satan very well, he's in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job said in verse 10, You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Now, Job's lost all of his worldly goods. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. And he's lost the confidence of his wife. She says, Job, why is it that you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and kill yourself? That's essentially what she invites him to do. Now, Job demonstrates great wisdom here. I say this somewhat in jest, but I, I really mean this too. There is a great deal of difference between saying to your wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, and saying, you foolish woman. You husbands know the difference. <laughs> the, 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 the major part of the difference is how that conversation goes in. That's the major part of the difference. But there's wisdom, and there's grace, and for Job, there seems to be a degree of understanding for his wife's position and the burden that she carries. She's lost, too. Ten children, all of her worldly goods. And now she sees her husband in such a def desperate uh, position in terms of his health with balls from the head of his, uh, crown of his head to the sole of his feet. He says, not only do you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, but he went further. He said, should we accept only what is good from God and not adversity? Do you get what Job is saying again? Now, some of you will be troubled by this idea, but this is a thoroughly biblical idea. Job is saying this adversity is from God. And he is not struck down because of that idea. Rather, he is emboldened and helped by the idea that God has not forsaken him. God has not abandoned him. Rather, God is at work even in the adversity for his good and glory. Now again, we have this statement. Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. We have again a note from the narrator under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit that Job has not lost his mind. Later, there are going to be some instances when you think maybe he's lost his mind. Job's off his rocker. His, his health has failed to such a point that he's not thinking clearly. His affliction is more than he can bear in the moment, and he's lashing out in ways that are unhealthy and are not uh, clear or compelling or uh, right theologically. But here, we have the footnote. Not, not once, but twice. Job has not lost his mind in this. Job affirms, Job acknowledges that even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, God is firmly ensconced upon the throne of heaven, and he's not moving from there. He's there. He gives and he takes away. 
he, he, he works good into our life for our well-being and the glory of his name. And sometimes adversity has worked into our life for our well-being and for the glory of his name in ways that we can't comprehend or see. Now, here's the deal for us. We have a perspective that Job did not enjoy. You might think, well, if Job knew what we know, then he'd been all right with what was unfolding in his life. But Job does not know. And the reality is that we don't know either when the wind strikes the four corner of our proverbial house and things are worse than they've ever been before. There is a perspective that we simply cannot have. We must trust a good and faithful God who is in heaven and who always does what is right by his children. Just recently I was talking with my kids about dangers and temptations. I don't, we, were, we were talking about... Um, television and specifically YouTube and cell phones and those sorts of things and we've taken precautions in all of those areas and if you're not taking precautions in all of those areas then you are just in, in, in parenting on, on the bleeding edge of insanity. Uh, there's all kinds of danger out there. But the response is we, we don't understand why it is that we could not have absolute liberty in these areas and there's no way to impart that understanding to them. My example is always the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All that Adam and Eve could see was what it held forth for them, what it promised them. But they could have never imagined the consequences that could result from their taking of that forbidden fruit. It set in motion a chain of events that impacts us even thousands of years after their existence here on earth. Even today, we're still deeply impacted by that decision. The consequences for which they could have never seen or understood. How often it must be that God observes us in our frailty, in our lack of comprehension, thinking at times that we have the hand of God figured out. That's what we do, right? When something bad happens, we begin to do the math and we say, well, this is how God is going to work this out for my good. And many times we are able to look back on our experience and mark the ways that it worked out for our good. But in our likelihood, if you see five things that God has done through your adversity, there are five million other things that you are completely unaware of and won't see this side of glory. God just has a different perspective than what we're able to enjoy or even comprehend. But here what, here's what we can know. That God always does for us what we would have him to do if we had his perspective on our life. We can rest confidently in that. Job has some friends. They're not the best of friends, but they're friends nonetheless. He calls them miserable comforters later on in the book of Job. In verse 11, the Bible says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. And they sat on the ground with him seven days and seven nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Now, they may have been miserable comforters later, but they're pretty good pals here in the close of chapter 2. First of all, they were there. You get a lot of credit, friends, for just being there when your friends are hurting. I found as a pastor, most of the time, it's not about offering counsel. It's just about being present. Most people don't come to me because they want me to provide them with an answer. They already know what it is. They just need an opportunity to vent their feelings or to talk out their understanding of, 
of the scripture. There's value in just being there for a friend in their time of need, and they were there. And the Bible says that they sat quietly. And as long as they sat quietly, they were really good friends for Job. But as is always the case, eventually we open our mouths and insert our foot. That's exactly what Job's friends do. Now, one of the reasons that people sort of get lost in the book of Job and their study of Job is because much of the book of Job is filled with content that is not right. In fact, it is wrong. And it's in the text because it is wrong. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are each given three opportunities to speak to Job. And in each cycle of speeches, Job responds. Now, in the beginning, they're they're boisterous and they have all of the answers and things are really worked out in neat categories for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And every time Job responds in, in ways that are really quite appropriate at times. For instance, in chapter 13 and, and verse 5. 13 and verse 15, sorry. Job is responding to Zophar. And what he keeps insisting is, this is not the result of some sin in my life. This has not happened to me because I've committed a sin that God is punishing me for. Job says, I, I, I hear what you're saying to me, that this has to be the result of some great sin, but the great sin is not there. Yes, I'm a sinner, Job is saying, but there's not, there's not been this great sin that's brought about this judgment. And, and, and again, in verse 15, this is probably my favorite verse in the book of Job. In chapter 13, and verse 15, he says, Though he, in the King James, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. No matter, no matter what happens to me, whether God chooses to give greatly or whether God chooses to give great adversity, I will trust in him. Perhaps the best known verse in all of the book of Job comes just a few chapters later in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. The same attack, the, the, the same speech from Bildad. This is happening to you because you've done bad things. Job is responding, yes, I am a sinner, but no, there is not this grave sin that has resulted at last on the earth. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Job is working with a good theological framework, right? Even, even an advanced theological framework, given the time that he lived on this earth. He says, I know that one day I will see my living Redeemer face to face. We will stand together in fellowship. My Redeemer lives. And the longer the speech cycles run, with each speech cycle the miserable, comforting friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are running out of material. Their, their bad theology cannot provide answers for the real suffering of Job. The problem is that as the bad theology of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is running out, Job, Job is drifting from a healthy position to a somewhat prideful position. So he begins in the beginning to say, yes, I'm a sinful person, but this is not the result of some sin. But as is often the case, Job allows his view of himself to get a little too high and his view of the Lord to get a little too low. 
And as we come to the end of the book, God chastises Job greatly for this. Now, there's a fourth friend who is introduced in chapters 32 through 37. His name is, his name is Elihu. And Elihu is, is a young man. In fact, he says, I've been quiet all this time because I'm younger than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I'm the young guy. So I've been standing around and listening to these conversations, and I've held my peace. But Elihu says, at this point, I've heard all that I want to hear, and I've got a word for you. I, I, want, I want you to know, and we need to be reminded, that young people are not without some degree of wisdom. There are, in fact, a number of young people traipsing around this world who have a great deal of insight. And it's the young man, the young friend of Job, that has a word of encouragement for Job, and even a word of, of correction. I think Elihu provides for us, and this will be helpful as you read through the book of Job later in the year and, and try to understand the flow of how things are happening. Elihu is the friend that gets it right. He gets uh, chapters 32 through 37, which is a lot for this speech. And then in the closing chapter of the book of Job, in chapter 42, when God chastises the friends of Job, he has no word of negativity for Elihu. In chapter 42, in verse number 7, the Bible says, After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you. And he goes on, and then he speaks to, to Bildad the Shuhite in verse 9, and then he speaks to Zophar the Namathite in the same verse. In other words, you three friends miss the mark. He never says anything with regards to Elihu, which leads me to believe that he affirms what Elihu says. And the genius of what Elihu shares with Job is that he introduces a new category, a category for righteous people who suffer. See, the three friends didn't have this category. They just had suffering people who were, in their system, bad people. And you, you suffer in their system. And then there was the category of people who were uh, good people, and they experienced good things. But they had no category for Job until Elihu introduces uh, this idea of righteous suffering in chapter 36, verses 5 through 15. Chapter 36, verse 5, Elihu spoke and said, Yes, God is mighty, but he despises no one. He understands all things. He, he does not keep the wicked alive but he gives justice to the, to the afflicted. He does not remove his gaze from the righteous, but he seats them forever with enthroned kings, and they are exalted. If people are bound with chains, if the righteous are bound with chains and trapped by the cords of affliction, God tells them what they have done and how arrogantly they have transgressed. He opens their ears to correction and insists they repent from iniquity. That is, the righteous repent from iniquity. There is a sediment of sin in the heart of the most righteous person. And through affliction, God is sifting that pride out of our hearts. In verse 11, he says, If they serve him obediently, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in happiness. But if they don't obey, they'll cross the river of death and die without knowledge. Those who have a godless heart harbor anger. Even when God binds them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth. Their life ends among male cold prostitutes. But listen to verse 15. 
God rescues the afflicted by their affliction. He instructs them by their torment. Even for the righteous, suffering has a purifying effect in our lives. Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, said there are really three ways to understand your Bible and God. Reading the Bible, prayer, and suffering. These are the three great teachers. The reading of God's Word, meditation and prayer, and the experience of, of suffering. The Bible says in chapter 36 and verse 15, God rescues the afflicted by their affliction. He instructs them by their torment. In other words, affliction, torment, suffering, hardship is often God's means of molding us and shaping us into the image and the likeness of His Son. Not an indication of the loss of God's favor but an absolute exclamation that God chastens whom he loves. An indicator for the righteous that God is actively at work in our life for our good and for his glory. This cannot be overstated. We cannot stress this principle enough. If you've not yet come to a place in your life where you needed this reminder, establish the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. He says in verse 8, Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far, but no farther, your proud waves stop here. Job, where were you? Where, where were you, Job, when I was doing all that I've done within creation, when I hung the stars in the sky and set the planets in their courses and put the sun and the moon for light by day and night? In verse 19 of chapter 39, he said, Job, do you give strength to the horse? 
Do you adorn his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His proud snorting fills one with terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He charges into battle. He laughs at fear since he's afraid of nothing. He doesn't run from the sword. He has all of these fascinating questions. Things like, Job, what about the cow? What do you think about the cow, Job? Where were you when I made the cow with these great bones? With, with, this, with this broad structure who would consume the grass with ease. Job, where were you when I made the crocodile? It's kind of a strange creature. Job, what about the giraffe's neck? Where, where are you on that? What, what's, your, what's your opinion on the length of the giraffe neck? Where, where were you when I made the heavens and the earth as they are? And all God is saying is he asks question after question after question is, is reinforcing to Job that he enjoys a perspective on our life that is completely foreign to us. In chapter 40, the Lord continues in verse 2, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Job answered, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once and I'll not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. Now that's a humble response, but God doesn't let Job off that easy. In fact, in verse 7, he says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. This is a, this is a father-son talk, right? You've had this conversation? This is... Like when my daddy would ask me, are you dumb? You could not win. Like if you said yes, you know you're not, and that's why it makes me so mad, you know. And if you said you're not, then of course you knew better than doing what you'd done in the first place. It's a lose-lose deal for Job here. God says, no, Job, you'll, ask, you'll answer me and you'll speak with me like a man. Our time is up, but in the end I want you to know that Job is restored. The Bible says in chapter 42 and verse 10 that after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. And all his brothers and sisters and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the days of adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a kesita and a gold earring. Did you catch that? Did you catch the motivation for the compassion and understanding of Job's friends? They sympathized with him, the Bible said, and they comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. So it just verifies all that we talked about back in chapters 1 and 2. I do want you to know that it doesn't always work out that God reverses our fortunes here on earth. Sometimes bad things happen from which we don't recover this side of heaven. Sometimes the pain lasts longer than we had hoped it would last, and we don't get the opportunity to see our fortunes uh, reversed or the tables turned for us in the here and now. But it really makes no difference. God is still in the business of doing His people good. And there will come a day, either on this side or the other, when we receive by faith in Jesus a crown of righteousness, and a a level of understanding at God's purpose and plan in our life that we could have never enjoyed here. When all that is wrong with this cruel and wicked world, and there is no denying it is a cruel and wicked place, is made right in the company of angels 
and the presence of our King. One day, one day, either on this side or the other, the good and faithful God of heaven will make everything all right.